0: Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, this is the Schweppe, and today we're speaking with Dr. Dylan Burns, research associate in the Faculty of Egyptology at the Freie Universität Berlin, and a man who really does know a thing or two about Sethian Gnosticism. Dylan, thanks very much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Now, doctor... The Sethians are absolutely fascinating. You've written a very fascinating book about them, as well as many scholarly publications. The book is Apocalypse of the Alien God, Platonism and the Exile of Sethian Gnosticism. So let's get into it. I'd love to see if we can create a picture of this thing called Sethianism, such that our listeners will get an idea of what it is, and maybe its importance for Western esotericism as well. So if I were to come up to you on the street and say, Dylan, what is a Sethian? What would be your first response?
1: Well, uh, a, a Sethian person is a is a hypothesis, but we have there is something that is uh, worth referring to as Sethian Gnosticism, and that's a, a set of, of literature, right? So the same way that we talk about the the, the genre of science fiction, or we talk about travel books. We have a body of literature from antiquity that's useful to designate as Sethian because of the content. Okay. okay, and this is a religious literature that belongs to roughly Gnostic inclination, which is to say, these are texts which differentiates in some way between God and the creator of the world, and which also elevates the human being above the creator of the world and the creation that that see the human being as uh, akin to God in some way, and distanced from the creation, on the other hand. And so if, he, if that's Gnostic, Sethian Gnostic refers to the body of Gnostic traditions, which venerate Seth as revealer or savior. and. Often take him to be a divine figure himself.
0: Now, back in, in episode 80, we talked to Michael Williams about this troublesome term Gnosticism, and he basically broke users of the term into three camps. One are people who just use it willy nilly, they just basically anything Irenaeus calls Gnosticism will call Gnosticism. There's a, a very small camp. Including himself, which says, "Let's get rid of this term. It's not useful as a scholarly term." And you're of the third camp, which is the camp that uses it in a very, very limited way to describe a certain group of, let's say, texts that may have well have included people who were on about gnosis and who even described themselves as gnostic. Would you say that's a fair um, characterization of your position?
1: Yeah, I would. I would say. I would say the only the only part where I would take issue with it is. The uh, identification of the the non the anti-Gnostic camp, let's not use the word Gnostic or Gnosticism, I would say that's actually the dominant position really? in, in the university today. Okay,
0: good to know. So they've been fighting their position for a few decades now, and they're gaining traction. You certainly see the word Gnostic just thrown into quotation marks a lot in scholarship these days, which seems to be
1: yeah like people. This is this of- is this is one approach. This is one approach you see. So, and, and, and I think it's very telling. Yeah. Um, William, I mean, Williams's crit- criticisms are are useful, and his his book, Rethinking Gnosticism, arguments for dismantling a dubious category. That's that's a wonderful and uh, tremendously useful book. I, I learned a lot from it and have uh, read it and reread it uh, many times. So, But I do think that there, there, there's some agreement among scholars that even those who, like Williams, don't want to use the term Gnosticism, right, that there is a body of distinctive literature from antiquity that we want to use some term for right. because they do something funny with creation and human beings they, they view the creation in this critical way they view the creator of the world who they identify as the the god of the bible and this in this very critical way and I, and I think that they also view human beings in this in in a particular way where they elevate the human being above the creator they see the human being as special and divine in some way hmm. Uh, Williams is not so interested in that, but Williams himself does not dispute that you have a distinctive body of Christian literature that disparages the creator and that we need some term to talk about it. Mm. What he disputes is that the term Gnostic and the related term Gnosticism, that these are the, he disputes that these are the right words yeah. for that. Rather, he suggests that the phrase biblical demiurgicalism, yeah. Which is um, imprecise in some ways, but but I, I think that the main problem with it is that it's just a mouthful. It's too long. It's never going to catch on. Too many
0: syllables. I like it. And also, as we will probably get to when we, di- when we go on to discuss the uh, Platonizing Sethian Gnostic current, um, this is not always so biblical, but it's still recognizably Gnostic. But let's let's get on to that. Um, having having defined the Sethians. We, we haven't defined the Sethians. No, okay. We, we defined to define Sethian, Sethian
1: Gnosticism. Right. And and, th- and this is important. I try in the book and, and in my publications to talk less about the Sethians and more about Sethian texts and literature. And the reason for this is that the material, like the, the, the bodies of texts that we've discovered from antiquity and the literary traditions to which they're related in literature from antiquity that was preserved for us, heresiographical texts, things like that. They don't always necessarily link the traditions that we refer, that we want to call Sethian because they venerate Seth to a group of people who call themselves Sethians. In other words, it's difficult to find a social group of People trading in Sethian literature, hmm. where we have evidence that they called themselves the Sethians, that, and that's important. We don't know that they called themselves Sethians. Uh, rather, one of uh, the, the most memorable epithets for as a self-designation you find in the Sethian literature is the immovable race. They call themselves the immovable race. So we, we should really call them the immovables or something.
0: <laughs> now, and as a, as that's... a thought experiment, could I say something along these lines? Um, the Valentinians, whether or not they called themselves Valentinians at this or that period, and prob- most probably they called themselves Christians, nevertheless were enough of a distinct movement. You could have a Valentinian church, for example, in in the later period. So it it is justified to talk about them as Valentinians in a way that it isn't for the Sethians, where we just can't say that that was the case at all. Is that is that a just thing to say? Yeah, I think that's that's a good comparison. the The, the comparison to the
1: Valentinians is, is instructive in another way, which is 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 very important. And uh, this was pointed out by David Brackey, uh in an article that's that's almost ten years old. Bracky observes that you can trace Valentinian literature to small circles of educated Christian teachers Mm. and their students, usually Platonists who are engaging in exegesis of Christian scripture using Platonist teaching. These teachers have names. They were famous. You can say, uh, heresiographers, heresiographers will say, uh theodotus lived in the east ptolemy lived in rome you can now while while the information about where these individuals were is uh uh well there's we have less information about the the where and when of these individuals than we would want to have but nonetheless we have some such information the sethian gnostic literature is not connected to any anybody with a name or a place it is uniformly pseudographic. that is all of the texts are written under pseudonyms usually pseudonyms that adopt for the sake of asserting their own authority the guise of a revealer or sage of primeval antiquity this is very important you don't have Uh, an extract from a Sethian text that is called the teaching of the Sethian um, uh, Ptolemy. Rather, you can have an extract of a Sethian text that refers to the apocalypse of Adam. Right. Epiphanius knows such a text. Or apocalypses of the foreigners, the Allogenes, and so forth. Yeah. And this this is interesting we can't identify particular Sethian individuals or teachers, and we can't locate them in particular places except where we know of other individuals who were engaging in reading this stuff. For example, the philosopher Plotinus, who his student Porphyry tells us responded to Sethian literature being circulated by Christians in Rome around the year 263 CE. And this is very important information, what Porphyry says, that there were Gnostic texts being circulated in Rome in this particular year. They were associated with names of particular Gnostic Christian teachers. And they had a particular genre that Porphyry points out, uh, the genre Apocalypse. He, call it, he refers to apocalypses, revelations. Yeah, And this is actually the most concrete information we have about the circulation of a body of Sethian texts anywhere in antiquity.
0: Right. Crucial. We'll come back to the evidence from Plotinus and Porphyry, doubtless, in the, in the course of this interview. Before we do that, though, having established at least a kind of blank space within which to paint our Sethians, can you tell us about the texts themselves briefly? To Just maybe a list of names, where we find them, i.e. Naghamadi. Hammadi. Just give us a bit more color to our idea of what these texts are like for those who've never had a look into them.
1: Sure. So the, the Sethian literature is uh, uniformly preserved in Coptic, which is the last phase or final phase of the egyptian language coptic flourished from roughly the late third early fourth century ce to the 14th century ce when it went into obsolescence and arabic became for good the, the language of christian egypt and because everything in egypt survives and there were Uh, there, There were many individuals trafficking in Gnostic literature in Egypt, in late antiquity, or at least Roman antiquity. We also have some Gnostic books that survive from Egypt. And these survive not in Greek, not in Latin, they survive in Coptic. They were transmitted by individuals who wrote Coptic, which means they were Christians, because there is no Coptic literature that's not Christian. It's a, one of the languages of a Christian community of the East, like Armenian or Aramaic. Now, the Coptic Gnostic corpus, as we could refer to it, is constituted by three finds. One is, well, actually, what should what you say four? What should say four finds? Four bodies of literature. One is the so-called Bruce Codex, a second is the so-called Askew Codex. A third is the so-called Berlin Gnostic Codex or Akmim Codex. And the fourth is the Nag Hammadi Fine. The Bruce and Askew codices are literature that found their way to Europe in the 18th century mm. and were not published until the 19th. The Berlin or Akmim Codex was discovered in the 19th century and published in the mid-20th century. And then In 1945, apparently, there was discovered in Upper Egypt near the city of Nag Hammadi, 12 papyrus codices and parts of a 13th tucked into the covers of one of the 12 codices. And these codices named for the city of Nag Hammadi because that was the... Nearest city with a, uh, a train stop <laughs> close to the find, these found their way to Cairo and went on the market. And when scholars began to look at these materials in the 50s and 60s, one of the first things they dis- they noticed was the importance of a figure of the figure of Seth in the texts. Seth the third child of Adam and Eve, although some scholars ask themselves at first, are we really talking about the Egyptian Seth here, the, 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 the enemy of Osiris and Horus? Mm. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's an early thesis in, in the Nag Hammadi research literature. Is it an Egyptian or Jewish Seth? And it's an easy question to answer when you actually read the text. Seth is always good and usually appearing around the figure of Adam. And so this tells us it's probably Seth, the third son of Adam and Eve, uh, the good one from whom humanity is descended in the book of Genesis. So even the the earliest readers of the Nag Hammadi codices, uh, scholars beginning to interpret and translate them in the 50s and 60s, notice that the figure of Seth is very prominent in these texts. And he even features in the name of some of these texts. There's a work, for example, called the second treatise of the great Seth, where Seth appears as a kind of revealer figure identified in some way with Jesus. And this is a text actually that does not, that we would say is not Sethian Gnostic, although uh, Seth is very important and figures in the title, but it doesn't have a, a particular constellation of literary features that many other texts that venerate do, and this is this is an interesting thing. We know that Seth was very important in the early church and in ancient Jewish literature, but there's a particular set of these texts from Nag Hammadi that venerate Seth. But then they also have a bunch of other features in common that make them distinctive from other Seth traditions. So, for example. You have names of angels like Abrasax, Samblo, names of, of what are called luminaries, uh, angelic figures, but who appear to be uh, especially highly venerated angels, especially powerful angels, who appear in texts like the Apocryphon of John mm-hmm. or in Zostrianos, Davete, uh, Eirelet, and so forth. There are, there's, a dis, there's a division of history into uh, three phases, mm-hmm. each marked by a particular cataclysm resulting in a great end of history at the end. And in the 70s, a German scholar named Hans Martin Schenke argued that there's a particular group of texts that share different facets of these features, some more than others, but that they all seem to have some kind of family resemblance to one another. And he called this the Sethian group. And this constitutes uh, some of the most important texts from the Nag Hammadi library, like the Apocryphon of John, Zostrianos, the the three Stales of Seth, and so forth.
0: So we have these texts. Um, Now, I would just add from my non-specialist perspective that if you're someone who loves crazy metaphysical constructions or someone who loves crazy divine pantheons you want Sethianism because you get both at the same time and if you're someone who loves a lot of the interesting aspects that we're familiar with from the Greek magical pyre but in a religious context you also want the Sethian text especially the Marsanis because you get lots of what are called wokes magikai including the kind that are just strings of vowels in Sethian materials. You also get um, what they call alphabetic mysticism in the literature, but I think maybe alphanumeric speculations is a better way of putting it, especially in Marsanis. And if you're someone who really loves the old-school Second Temple Jewish material concerned with dealing with angels, and in particular concerned with perhaps transforming into an angel or an angelic being or a quasi-angelic being, you're also going to want to check out Sethianism. What have I left out that's really cool about this stuff? Oh, if you're a lover of apophatic language, where the highest god is removed really utterly from the human ken and kind of placed beyond an abyss with, with a great deal of rhetoric... Of unsaying, you're definitely going to want to check out, especially the Apocryphon of John. Have I missed? No, up? I think you.
1: I think you describe it really well. I mean, to try to summarize that in the in the Sethian corpus, you you get a lot of things meeting that aren't supposed to meet. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: I should also say it's Jewish and it's Christian in some sense as well, right? And and this is this is this presents us one of the the,
1: the main difficulties. How how, how does this stuff actually fit together, you know, where you where you seem to have Jewish apocalypticism, uh, Christian liturgical speculation, and Neoplatonic mysticism coming together? Well, doesn't that mean that you're misreading something? Maybe one of those things isn't there because you're not supposed to see, see these things coincide in a, in a single literary tradition or in a single text. And nonetheless, that seems to be what uh, the Sethian corpus presents us with. You have tremendous influence from Jewish apocalyptic literature. You have a body of texts which have clear indebtedness to the Neoplatonism of the third and fourth centuries. Mm -hmm. And then you also have many Christian features in some of these texts, veneration of Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, you have a lot of baptismal language in these texts, but the baptisms are figurative. There's even descriptions of, uh, or or I should say, there are even denigrations of baptism with water, Mm. right? So yeah, this this is a good question. What is the baptismal language in this text? How can baptismal language coincide with attacks on people baptizing with water. Well, what is, yeah. what, 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 how, how to explain that? There's a great diversity of traditions in this, in this literature at work. And so some scholars have argued, well, maybe that's because we have here the product of a single social group that went through a diversity of identities. <laughs> no, so the history of the Sethians features Jews, Christians, pagans, but it's it's all it's all Sethian.
0: Your mention of baptism makes me want to dive straight into the fascinating question of religious practice that may or may not lie behind these texts, which is it's the most difficult and tricky territory but also in a way the most interesting. But before we do that, I want to do cover a few more basics if if I may. I'd love to get your take on the dating of these materials. Now we know that the, The the majority of the texts we have date from presumably sometime in the 4th century. This is the Nag Hammadi corpus. We know that the texts were around, or at least texts by those names were around in Greek, at least in the 3rd century, because Porphyry says they were circulating in Plotinus' seminar. So the texts go back at least to the 3rd century, some of them, in some form. But in your book, you talk a lot about the politics of... Or the, say the cultural politics of the second sophistic, which is largely a second century phenomenon, in in relation to the identity formation we find in the Sethian material. So, when do you think this stuff goes back to? And feel free to speculate if if you um, if you feel the need, and and just let us know what how you're. Oh, I'm about. I'm I'm
1: I'm pretty conservative about dating this stuff. Okay, I mean, but so to, to to lay it out. It's it, it's it's not it's not difficult to lay it out in a in a clear way. So Jesus of Nazareth flourishing, dies, year thirty. Right. Mm-hmm. We seem to have um, circulation. We have we have definite evidence for the circulation of gospel materials in the early second century. We project that they go back to the, the later first century. But we, we're not so sure about that. But we seem to have individuals calling themselves Christians, talking, quoting, quoting Gospels in the, the early second century. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of the second century, we have writers writing about heresies, uh, what, we, what scholars call heresiographers. People like a guy in Gaul named uh, Irenaeus
0: who was Bishop of Lyon. Yeah, we've encountered him in the podcast.
1: Previously. Ah, great.
0: His, his gray so,
1: evidence. So he, exactly, exactly. Well put. His gray evidence, Irenaeus, the, the Bétois for uh, all researchers of, of Gnosticism. He's a gift that keeps on giving. And and his uh, unforgettably titled treatise, The Detection and Overthrow of Heresies. Oh, Detection and Overthrow of Gnosis Falsely So-Called. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Irenaeus tells us about uh, a a lot of things he doesn't like, things he doesn't want his congregation or other congregations to be reading. And he gives us lists of teachers uh, with whom he disagrees and who he, he calls heretics. And he sometimes even gives quotations of their writing. And Irenaeus, the same Irenaeus, writing around 180, gives us long extracts from the beginning of Uh, from from what is the most well-preserved Gnostic text from antiquity, and that is the Apocryphon of John. Uh, Apocryphon means secret book, so translated this would be the secret book of John. Mm. Why do I say the most well-preserved? It seems to have been popular. We have four manuscripts of the Apocryphon of John. Together with Irenaeus' extensive quotations, we have five witnesses to at least part of the text.
0: Not bad for a secret book, eh?
1: No, not bad at all. Not bad at all. Why was it popular? It seems to, I think it was popular then for the reason that it's popular now. It's certainly the Gnostic text that scholars like to interact with the most, excepting perhaps uh, uh, big names like the Gospel of Thomas. But the, C- the secret book gives a complete history of the universe. It's very comprehensive. And everything that one might reckon to be Gnostic, one finds in it. it. It begins with a great description of the Godhead through negative theology. It describes the creation of the world by a malevolent creator or demiurge. It describes the divine origins of human beings, the battle human beings engage in with demons called archons, and the eventual absorption, predicted absorption of, of human beings into the world of light. It's, it gives you the whole story of what people take to to be Gnostic literature. It's all there, and the, the comprehensive nature of the account I think was compelling in antiquity too. Hmm. Uh, the, this may be why it, it was it was widely copied. We have three copies from Nag Hammadi alone. Uh, the, the fourth one's in the Achmim Codex. The Apocryphon of John gives us a good test case for the problem of dating, because we have these four Coptic versions of the text, right, four apocryphons of John, and they could not possibly be earlier than the early fourth century when Coptic literature begins to circulate. You don't have Coptic before that. You don't have Coptic in Irenaeus's this day. And there are signs from the nature of the language that they are translated from Greek, and we know Irenaeus wrote in Greek and he quotes part of the text so we know that there was a version of part of the text circulating in Irenaeus's day that he knows
0: late 2nd century
1: late 2nd century and yet does this mean that these Coptic versions should, are, that these Coptic versions simply preserve for 2nd century literature well it's more complicated than that there are aspects so where you have an overlap Between the text that Irenaeus quotes and the Coptic versions, it's not a one-to-one parallel, right? You can tell it's the same text, but some things are different. Now, this is to be expected. Irenaeus doesn't tell us that he is trying to preserve this text for you. He's quoting it so that he can refute it, Right. right? So his quotation is selective. It may even be from memory, although given how detailed his account gets, I think that's unlikely. And then you also have to account for change that, takes, that will take place over time naturally in the text. But then particular features of the text that look very interesting to us. So, for example, aspects of the metaphysics that are used in describing God in this text. These look a lot like what you find in 3rd and 4th century philosophy in the Coptic versions. Mm. And precisely this language is missing from the version that Irenaeus quotes. So does this mean that the Coptic versions are picking up on contemporary philosophy and rewriting an old text in light of what was becoming for them state-of-the-art knowledge? Or does it mean that the Coptic versions preserve for us predecessors, forerunners, pioneers of ideas that only became mainstream in philosophy later? And it's impossible to decide on that. Both possibilities are there, and you cannot definitively prove that it goes one way or the other. All that you can say is that the two versions are, are not exactly the same, and you cannot demonstrate that Irenaeus knows exactly the version that we have preserved in Coptic.
0: Right.
1: It's, it's, not, it's not a one-to-one.
0: Well, this brings us to the last little point of kind of plodding methodology that I wanted to discuss with you, which is, what is Platonizing Sethian Gnosticism? This is maybe a final piece of the background puzzle we want to lay down. Sure.
1: So within the Sethian corpus, depending on on who you ask, around a dozen, maybe less than a dozen texts, Mm -hmm. you have a particular set of texts that really do seem to be closely connected to the teaching of the third century Platonist Plotinus. Why do we say that? They refer in some way to a triad of being, life and mind as metaphysical hypotheses or instantiations of the, the most primal principles of reality. What does it mean to to exist? First, it is to be; then, it is to live; then, it is to think, right? So, the, the 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 forms or most primal instantiations of that would be being, life, and mind, respectively. This triad is is implicit in a lot of Plotinus's writing and animates his thought. And you find it explicitly formulated by his student Porphyry, and also explicitly formulated and referred to in four. Of the Sethian texts from Nag Hammadi. These are two apocalypses, ascent apocalypses, that is, revelations that feature a narrative of ascent Zostrianos mm-hmm. and Arogenes. Then a liturgical text, actually, a ritual text called the Three Stalys of Seth. And then finally, what I can only describe as an occult manual or grimoire named Marsanes. Now, all four of these texts have pseudepigraphy in their titles. That is, Zostrianos claims to be the revelation given by Zol- the figure Zostrianos, the grandfather of Zoroaster. Alogenes claims to be the revelation given by a figure named Alogenes, which means stranger or foreigner, otherworldly one in, in this particular context. The Three Steles of Seth, these purport to be three documents that Seth wrote, uh, carved into stone, wrote into steles
0: in, in, the classic, in his lifetime. In the classic Egyptian way of transmitting wisdom for the ages, right?
1: Oh, totally. And then, you, and then Marsanes um, appears to be the name of a, a seer named Marsanes, who's mentioned in other traditions as well, uh, which means the teacher, Sanes, uh, Mar being Aramaic for teacher. Or master. And these four texts, all related to Jewish apocalyptic traditions, making wide use of Jewish apocalyptic literary motifs, all use the language of Neoplatonism that we find in Plotinus and Porphyry. They refer to the, the triad of being, life, and mind. And they place great emphasis on the transcendence of the god itself, who they call the father, but they also often refer to as the great invisible spirit. This is interesting because no Platonist would refer to the first principle of spirit.
0: Indeed. Right? This is a very Christian thing, right? So the, the play, we've seen this already with Basilides, where he's talking about suddenly soul, which is the highest aspect of a human being in um, your traditional middle Platonism. Soul being a, maybe a negative thing. But spirit, pneuma, which up until this time had been kind of a physical, you know, material substance in its most common meaning, suddenly being this transcendent thing that is above soul.
1: Yeah, the the Hebrew Bible and the Septuagint refer to God the Father as a spirit at times. Mm. And this is carried over into early Christian literature. And this poses uh, interesting
0: problems for
1: early Christian metaphysicians.
0: Right. Oregon right? even has this problem. He says, he has to say in, in the beginning of Periarchon on, on First Principles, people say that when we talk about the pneuma, the spirit, we're talking about something material. No, 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 because it is it is to be understood immaterially. And so he has to make this explicit, pr- presumably for an audience who may be a bit familiar with Stoicism or a bit familiar with the, the the term to pneuma as it's used, for example, in the medical literature as a kind of something that flows through your body, all these kind of just purely materialist uses. He's saying, no, 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 it's not material. So the fact that he has to make that point shows the kind of general idea about pneuma. And do you think that this arises from a reception of these non-philosophic texts, i.e. the scriptures, by people who are versed in philosophy and they're, they're reading scripture and going, okay, well, pneuma is obviously not what the Stoics say it is. It must be something else. And thus you have a new kind of synthesis of what pneuma is? I think
1: something like that. I think something like that. I mean, how to put it, the reason early Christian and so much Gnostic literature refers to God as spirit is because this is what they knew from the Bible, Right. right? But did they understand it in a way necessarily different? Did they understand pneuma to be necessarily different from how the Stoics thought about pneuma? Not necessarily. The Stoic pneuma... Uh, is also immaterial but the the stoics don't necessarily identify the pneuma itself as being made of matter or hulae they say that it has a body and that it can animate matter or Hule. it's the it's the active principle on the passive matter right and so the spirit always has a body, but it does not necessarily have matter. Right. And many Christian writers also make, make this distinction. You find it in Clement and, and Origen, for example. So, and, and they're very comfortable with, with that because they, even as these same writers are indebted to Platonism and want to see God as transcendent, they also want God to be omnipresent.
0: Right, and, and the Stoics had, had made such detailed arguments for the omnipresence and providence of God within the universe that they could yeah. just draw on those and say, oh, that's a convenient argument. I'll take that from Chrysippus or I'll take that from Zeno or whatever and, and use it to, in my new context.
1: So now where did the Sethians, Sethians stand on this question? Hard to say because so much Sethian literature and especially the, the Platonizing Sethian texts don't talk about the world very much. They tend to talk about the beginning of the universe, and they tend to talk about what heaven and God look like. You have some Sethian texts that describe world history, Mm. but here you don't see too much activity from the spirit or pneuma itself. Uh, An exception perhaps being the Apocryphon of John, which has a a very developed soteriology or, or scheme of salvation history where the the spirit uh, and and its partner, a feminine deity called the Barbelo, intervene in history through divine providence on behalf of human beings on three repeated occasions. But in, in, in other Sethian texts like the Egyptian gospel or the Apocalypse of Adam, which describe world history and the salvation of human beings, uh, spirit doesn't come into history so much as as descending revealers do, right. figures who are who are basically reincarnations of Seth for Seth himself, and then his following reincarnations who may or may not at some point be identified with the figure
0: of Jesus Christ. Now you just mentioned heaven, so we have this co- the cosmos, this world, which as you say is is not really the concern of our writers, but in that very deceptively simple term heaven, you've elided an awful lot of complexity. And this brings us to something I actually wanted to ask you about. For a long time, scholars were talking about something called the Gnostic myth as a kind of Ur story that is the essence of Gnosticism. And some scholars even say the Gnostic myth, which is a pre-Christian story that then takes on a Christian flavor, so that there's this thing called sort of pan Gnosticism, of which the Gnostics we know are the Christian variant, but it's actually predates it. What is your take, first of all, on this idea of the Gnostic myth, before we even go any further? The Gnostic myth
1: and scholarship is a is a reconstruction based on mainly on heresiographical sources. Yep. Right. So what Irenaeus says is the myth to which the Gnostics subscribed that's the Gnostic myth. And you have lots of versions of that myth or stories that look like versions of that myth attested in other heresiographers, people like Tertullian or Epiphanius, and in very many of the Coptic texts that uh, we, we may wish to call Gnostic today. In fact, if we, if we want to use the term Gnostic for this Coptic literature, it is in large part because they preserve this myth right. in some way. But that does not mean that you can reduce these sources to a single myth or blueprint. The, these various myths do differ from each other in important respects. And it certainly does not seem to be the case that this myth was pre-Christian. You do not have evidence for the circulation of this myth until, the, say, the mid to late second century. Irenaeus is arguably our first witness for the myth itself. And the earliest you can trace elements, the primary element of this myth, the the, the bad creator of the world, would be back to the early second century. Right. Uh, our, our evidence regarding the figure of Basilides. So, even if we want to take the common elements of these Gnostic myths and boil it down to a, a particular set of features that we would say is the Gnostic myth, it's not pre-Christian.
0: Good. So having established that and disposed of that kind of old idea, could you lay down what you see as the Sethian myth or myths? Because you've mentioned the Barbelo, you've mentioned some Redeemer figures coming down. If I'm reading these texts in antiquity, because this is really interesting, right? How do I see the creation of the world? And that heaven you mentioned earlier, it's actually a very complex place full of, eons and all kinds of stuff going on and how is what's the relationship between that world and the cosmos what's the relationship between the great invisible spirit and that world and the cosmos i should say and what about these redeemers who come down to the cosmos where are they coming from how does that all work if you can maybe summarize to some degree and probably leave some stuff out but um give us your take on it
1: Sure thing. Although you're you're asking about a very big story, I know, <laughs> it is, because it's the story of everything. That's 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 what this story claims to be. now and it's, the, the and it's
0: very detailed,
1: right? This it's is another, very detailed. It's
0: another characteristic of this this literature. You don't just say there were some eons emanated, and from these eons came something else it's like no 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 there was a certain number of eons and they all had names and the names are kind of weird pseudo hebrew angel type names and then there were these four luminaries and then there was this and then the barbellow came and she was like this and built it up but then she had some repentance and blah blah so anyway go on it is uh, complex and this is detail oriented literature
1: um before before we get into the the story itself it's it's worth remarking something brief about the detail oriented character of this literature because you're right it's that's a that's a really distinctive characteristic of this stuff that's not only do you get a, a particular story instead of ideas it's told in a very complex way with a lot of details and i think part of this owes to what the composers of this literature thought was scientific expertise in their day so everything is broken down into complex numerological schemes that are, uh, owe something to contemporary mathematics and philosophy. Hmm. It was hot in the second century. I think part of it also owes to just a particular kind of rhetoric. You know, there are people who read Kabbalistic literature today with all of its numerological schemes and the, the endless speculations that Kabbalah generates. Kabbalah is a is a is a speculation generator, right? But the individuals who read and enjoy this stuff don't necessarily understand the mechanics of it or even what it is saying to them as much as a general sense of bigness and complexity. Mm. And I think I think this is true for some readers of Gnostic literature today. They don't need to be able to remember, all 12 of the Aeons that proceed from the Great Invisible Spirit before the Aeon Sophia wisdom breaks off and does her thing, right? But some people may enjoy reading this list of Aeons with grand names and because of the length and depth of such lists, getting a sense of great range and depth of the divine.
0: Hmm.
1: You see what I mean? I do see what the, the details may not be there to be individually read, as much as communicate a sense of grandeur, and I think I think that's a, that's an important thing to understand about this literature. There's a there's a a great emphasis on the rhetoric of grandeur. This is not humble stuff. <laughs> no, yeah. no, it's about the it's about the biggest thing you've ever heard. And that's what they want to tell you.
0: Both of the things you've just pointed out: the fact that it's not humble, and also the fact that it's immensely complex and likes to multiply stuff and why have one eon when you can have 12 eons are both things that Plotinus specifically picks up to attack in Ennead 2.9 about this literature
1: yeah these are things that
0: drive him crazy yeah
1: so the what, what is the Sethian story the the best way to think through it is uh, the Apocryphon of John because it gives a whole story start beginning and end. you can divide the Apocryphon of John into four sections a That is a description of the origins of God, a cosmogony, a description of the origins of the world, a anthropogeny, a description of the origins of human beings, and then a salvation history, a description of the salvation of human beings. The theogony, as you mentioned earlier, is an emanationist scheme. This is also something that this literature has in common with Neoplatonism, and one could argue uh, earlier so-called middle Platonism
0: more generally, right? Also, uh, one might want to draw links across to people like Philo and Clement, who in the first and second century had respectively, Jewish and Christian cosmological systems in which you have an emanationist approach to the relationship between the first god and the logos that comes after that and kind of stands between the first god and the cosmos.
1: I think so. And you, you have something like this. And the Apocryphon of John as well. You have the the great invisible spirit who is the Father, um, ineffable and undescribable in every way. From this ineffable, undescribable entity, it emerges a thought, a thought which is thinking itself, thinking that it is a thought, Aristotle's God, right? And this is a feminine entity, the Barbelo. And this is, uh, uh, the Barbelo is one of the, the most important characteristics of the Sethian corpus. You know, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you have other treatises that refer to Seth or that venerate Seth, like the Nag Hammadi second treatise of the great Seth. But we don't call them Sethian. Why? Well, you could say there's no Barbelo in the text. Okay. That's why. That's one of these mythological features which is distinctive to this body of text that also venerates Seth, and so we we call it Sethian in some way.
0: As an aside then, when people talk about Barbeloite Gnostic texts, are they talking about exactly the same corpus we're talking about as Sethian?
1: Roughly, yes. There's very little of the, the Sethian corpus that does not have Barbello in it. So, for example, the Apocalypse of Adam, which has many Sethian features, does not talk about Barbelo. And you could, you could argue this is because uh, it's about world history, not uh, the first thought of God. <laughs> right. But uh, nonetheless, Barbelo doesn't appear there. So you would say it's not Barbeloite. And, but there were enough people running around in antiquity talking about the Barbelo that the heresiographers make fun of what they call the Barbeloites. So this, the people were known for that and that is borne out by this literature where she's such an important figure. So the rest of the universe proceeds forth from this genetrix, really, the the barbelo, and one aeon after another. The way the Apocryphon describes it is is very distinctive. It is uh, the procession of the aeons proceeds like an overflow of water. This is a a metaphor that you have in Plotinus, the the spring gushing forth Mm. with water like something out of nothing. And the the beings that emerge from the Barbelo are described as thoughts, good thoughts. In other words, they seem to be thoughts in the mind of God, like you have also in Philo of Alexandria, mm. right? This idea in Platonism, well, where are the forms out of which the universe is created? Well, somebody at some point must have figured well they they must be in god's mind that's that's a good place for them to be you know and so the aeons that emerge from the barbelo they have names like mind truth justice and so forth consciousness insight these are very basic cognitive and ethical uh, notions basic ideas that a god needs to have in his mind. And these are actually the, the thoughts in the mind of the Barbelo that emerge forth.
0: So these these eons, or ionis, is it possible to define what an eon is in this particular worldview? Because the term is used a lot, of course, in antiquity and, and later antiquity to indicate a divine being of some kind, right? You have them in the Chaldean oracles, you have them in all kinds of places. But what can we say an eon? Eon is in this context.
1: Well, the the word eon can mean um, eternity, mm-hmm. but it can also mean a particular length of time. And in the classical Greek, it can even just mean a lifetime. You know, he reached the end of his eon. That means he reached the end of his life. You have that in Homer, but in in late antiquity, it has much more of a sense of eternity. So, forever and ever in the Lord's Prayer. That is, you know, to for to the aeons and the aeons, yeah. Greek, right? And you even have a, a a deity in Roman religion, a deity in Roman religion named Aeon, who's a a, a guy with the head of a lion, and he's the, the the deity who represents eternity. But a very distinctive characteristic of Gnostic literature is that they that you have the heaven described as being made up of aeons who seem to be who seem to constitute sometimes places so a description of aeons is something like a celestial topography but at other times they seem to describe angels or beings aeons sometimes do things in gnostic literature and you even have the sense that that it may be a place
0: and a living thing at once not unlike, nous.
1: Not unlike Plotinus's noose. Not unlike Plotinus's noose. And this is something that you see already in our earliest evidence about Gnosticism. Irenaeus describes these processions of Aeons. Now in the Apocryphon of John, you have twelve of them as the base group. So the, the twelve aeons constituting the the twelve ideas in the mind of God. And then sub-aeons come forth from these, three to each, making thirty-six total. And the last of these is named Sophia, Greek for wisdom. And it's with Sophia that something happens. She dares to want to conceive something out of herself, not asking for permission to emanate further from the father. All the other aeons had asked for permission. They would proceed forth before the deity and ask if they can create something new in something like a heavenly courtroom scene that probably owes to Hellenistic uh, regal literature. Right. Sophia doesn't do that. And so what she conceives of is something bad because she wanted to do it in a bad way. And the being that comes forth from her is a monster. And there's a, a wonderful, or one could think, a, a awful, terrible <laughs> description of what this monster looks like. He has the body of a, a snake or a dragon, the, the, the legs, I think, of a, of, a, of a hawk or a bird, the head of a lion, I forget. But the point is that he's stereomorphic. The different body parts of different beasts mm. come together on him. He's a, he's a fantastic being, and his eyes shoot forth lightning bolts, and his breath is like
0: fire. And he is the god of the Old Testament, that seems to be uh, who, who he acts like. So
1: he's begotten in ignorance and so is himself ignorant. He thinks that, uh, well, actually I, I got a little far ahead. Sophia wisdom is ashamed of this creation. So she hides him in the cloud and because he's hidden, he doesn't see the world above him from which he came forth. He thinks it's just him and his mother and so he thinks he is the first the first thing the first deity because even he has a trace of this impulse to emanate to to create through emanation in him he wants to go about creating himself so he steals creative power from his mother and he begins to build a universe which is a poor replica of the universe of the aeons from which he came he builds heavens material heavens he builds servants angels to serve him and he says i shall be your god you shall have no others before me he repeats claims to be the sole deity and sole authority that are taken from yahweh's claims to be the sole deity and sole authority in the Hebrew Bible and the Septuagint. And this shows that whoever authored this text was interested in uh, criticism of such claims. We know that there were uh, exegetes of the Bible, uh, critics of the Bible already in the first century who asked themselves, if God has a bunch of angels around, or if he's the only God, then why does he need to beat his chest and say, you shall have no other gods before me. If there's no competition, then why why does he say that there's competition, right? Yeah. You have lots of questions like that about the deity in this period. And the author of this text was indebted to these criticisms and, and thoughts. So you have this nasty deity who thinks he's the only one, and his name is Yaudubaut, a name Whose uh, etymology and meaning scholars continue to debate. So he and his servants who are called archons, rulers. Yeah, this is a word for rulers. Another very distinctive piece of Gnostic rhetoric. You know, it, it can mean ruler. It can. It says this is a normal word for a magistrate yeah. or a mayor. Okay, something like a governor.
0: Sorry to interrupt. It's also a normal word in, in astrological traditions for the planets.
1: Yeah, like the, the, the planetary rulers. So you have a word that's used for authorities, worldly authorities, but that's used as a pejorative. Right. And this language is very strong in Gnostic literature. You have a lot of archons, and they're never good. You don't have good archons up in heaven. They're just making problems for human beings. Right. And I think this is, this is one of the pieces of evidence where we, we want some kind of term to describe this literature as distinctive. You may not want to call it Gnostic, but you need to call it something because it was strange for early Christians to run around saying the rulers are bad. Hmm. Early Christians were a of persecution. They saw what happened to the Jews during the Bar Kokhba revolt yeah. and the revolts against Trajan, the revolts, in the late first and early second century that nearly resulted in Jewry being completely wiped out in the Mediterranean. Early Christians were deathly afraid of that happening to them. So they said in the second and early third century, generally very nice things about rulers and authorities. They wanted to play ball with the Romans. And this literature walked around instead talking about how bad rulers were. That's a distinctive, strange thing.
0: So this will be the, one of the main reasons why some people have wanted to read the Gnostics as anarchists, avant la lettre, right? That they were against all forms of authority. They were a kind of like super spiritual, never mind the rules, s- smash all authority. You don't need a church hierarchy. We are anarchists sort of movement, which many uh, scholars have wanted to read them as in, in one way or another. And never mind scholars' modern reception of Gnosticism in contemporary spirituality.
1: Totally, you, you don't you don't have a word for anarchy in this literature, yeah. but you have a lot of railing against authority, and that that is uh, uncontestable. There's, there's a lot of transgressiveness in this literature, and that's that's one of the most transgressive things about it. So you you have Yaldabaoth and his archons, depending upon the version of the myth you read. Uh, what happens next is it's a little bit uh, uh, different but human beings come into the picture in, in the apocryphon of john it's simply the case that yaldabaoth makes a boast about how he's the only one about how he's the the sole god and this is too much for the aeonic world the real world of divinities and a voice issues forth from heaven that says, no, no, no. The, the son of man, the man exists in the son of man. These, these are, of course, titles uh, taken from the New Testament, pray for, for Jesus. And when this voice appears, the, air, the, the archons all tremble. They become very scared. And delivering this voice appears an image of the deity in some way, some kind of heavenly Human being, or man of light, and it's so beautiful, or rather, hmm, beauty does not necessarily come into the question in, in the apocryphon of John, although some later traditions, like Manichaean texts, will bring it in. But it is so compelling, <laughs> I should say, yeah,
0: so powerful. It's so
1: it's it's so it's so compelling, so powerful. This vision that the archons and Yaldabaoth are inspired to create something that looks like it, and that is the first human being. Now, here the apocryphon of John gets uh, complex, but the, the short version is they create a human being. This is Adam. They create a partner for him. This is Eve. They want Adam and Eve to be subject to them, but the divine element that is in Adam, because Adam was modeled off of this divine thing, so he has a divine element. Mm-hmm. This divine element is something that the Aeonic world cares about. And so it begins to intervene on behalf of Adam and Eve. There's a kinship between the primordial couple and the divine realm. And so the divine realm intervenes on their behalf. Right. And it sends agents into history to help them. These agents have different names in the, the different versions of the apocryphon of John, depending on the the manuscript, it it adjusts. But generally speaking, they refer to the human rational faculty, and in one of the episodes, it even describes the apple on the tree of knowledge of good and evil as being the knowledge that is presented through this intervention of of the divine. So knowledge of good and evil and of one's own divine nature is taken in this literature to be a good thing a real inversion of the story of adam and eve in the garden of eden and access to that knowledge is something that was provided through the intervention of the divine world intervening through the medium of a kind of divine thought, uh, what's called a uh, reflection, a binoya, or a providence or forethought, uh, a polinoya. Eventually, human beings come from Adam and Eve. They beget the human race. The archons torment and try to foil these human beings in different ways, in part through uh, encasing human beings in material bodies. And eventually, we are told these human beings, or rather the divine parts of human beings will be redeemed and reabsorbed back into the divine world. That's the story of Sethian literature as told by the Apocryphon of John. And other Sethian texts seem to, they they tell parts of the story, but in distinctive ways, they go their own direction with it. Mm. And one could say, well, on the one hand, This is actually really uh, distinctive traditions, which uh, do not have a presumed myth or narrative behind them. You know, one could say you don't have to read this story from the Apocrypha of John over these other traditions. But on the other hand, you often get the impression that such a story is presupposed in other Sethian texts. So the Apocalypse of Adam, which I mentioned before, it tells a, a history of Adam and Eve. Actually, Adam is dictating this, this revelation to Seth, his son, a, a literary motif you also have in the, the apocryphal uh, Testament of Adam, the so-called Testament literature.
0: We've seen this also in our when we talked about Enochian materials and second Temple Judaism more more generally in the podcast back in the 50s.
1: Right. A figure like Enoch or Adam or Seth is going to be able to tell you all about what the world was like before the flood. And you have these testaments that, that come from this uh, antediluvian or pre-flood world. And the, the Apocalypse of Adam tells you not about Yaldabaoth, but they have a similar figure named Saklas and the, the different races of, of humankind coming forth from Noah and Noah's sons and the fact of a of a bad demiurge interacting with old testament figures and then there being interventions of the divine on the behalf of the good human beings the the beings who belong to the divine realm this doesn't seem to be strange to the apocalypse of adam it doesn't explain why it's telling you this kind of story it's not introductory It seems to assume that you know a version of the story already and you want to hear some details.
0: Thank you very much, Dylan Burns, for speaking with us on the Schwepp. And may I be so bold as to suggest that, like the nature of the Great Invisible Spirit, you stay esoteric.
1: I do what I can. Thanks for
0: having me.